0: Hello, and welcome to the Ori Clark Audio Quick Guide, a straightforward conversation about a range of topics and issues commonly handled by Ori Clark experts for their clients. My name's Dominic Frisby, and joining me on this episode is corporate and commercial solicitor and partner at Ori Clark, Simon Walsh, alongside employment and data protection solicitor, Casey Lee Nielsen. And today's hot topic is data privacy and protection. And we're going to start with you, Casey. GDPR. What is it?
1: Uh, It's been a nightmare for most of our clients for the last three years, but basically what it is, and if it applies to you, is if you carry out business in the UK or the EU offering goods or services, it applies to you. So no matter if you've got a business here in the UK or in the EU, as long as you're offering services or goods to individuals in the EU, it'll apply.
0: So effectively, it applies to us all or anyone offering any kind of good or service into the EU?
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Why do I care?
1: Uh, Well, I think a big part of it is that it's... It's a fundamental right, your right to privacy. People are starting to care more about that their information is theirs and businesses can't sell it and use it to their advantage. So it's about realizing what I can do with my data, what a business can do with it when I give it to them and how they make money off of it. So it's really about building that trust between your clients and your business.
0: We live in a world where GDPR is a reality, but it was one of those controversial arguments around about the time when Brexit was going on, I remember. Was the world a better place before GDPR was imposed?
1: Um, I don't think so, no. I think it's better now that it is in place because it's making businesses operate better. So, for example, instead of just harnessing so much data and data that you're never going to use, it's an expense for you to store it all. Um, it's better for a business to realize the core data that they actually need for their business and focusing on that. And their customers and clients really appreciate that as well, that they're not just harnessing everything about them and they purely focusing on what they actually need in order to offer their service to their customers.
0: Okay. I personally find it, I mean, you described it initially as a nightmare. Just as a punter, I don't offer any service to Europe, but every time I go on a website now, I need to seem to click and accept a million cookies, and various American websites won't have me on their website altogether. So personally, it seems like it's
2: made life more complicated. I mean, it's an interesting question, Don, because I think people often forget this, but cookies are governed by another bit of legislation um, so there are these things called the Privacy and uh, Electronic Communication Regulations. Uh, lawyers love acronyms, so we just call it PECA. But essentially, cookies are governed by um, privacy regulations rather than GDPR, but both PECA and GDPR sit side by side. And you're right, I mean, it is quite frustrating. The, the US in particular you know, have their own data protection laws, as do most other jurisdictions. So kind of what all of these laws overlook in my opinion, is the fact that most online commerce is global in nature. It's not territorial in nature. So I think, coming back to Casey's uh, comments, I think to some extent it has made things much more complicated for businesses. But from an individual's point of view, if you're concerned about your privacy, then it just gives you um, a level of protection that uh, or a level of comfort that you may not have had before. I've got you. The internet is a borderless medium. It is.
0: So let's talk e-marketing specifically.
2: Okay, so PECA was primarily designed to to ensure that individuals had the right, if you like, not to receive unsolicited marketing messages through any of those electronic means, be it email, text, or phone in some cases. And uh, essentially, the underlying principles are that in order for you to be able to send an unsolicited email uh, or any form of e-marketing communication, you must first have obtained that individual's consent. And uh, consent can be obtained in a number of ways, but generally, for example, if you're collecting data off your own website, you know, let's say a user was required to fill in some personal details on a form, then just at the bottom of that form it should be very very clearly ask the individual to check a box if they consent to their information uh, being used for future marketing campaigns by your business and it's not uncommon to also see an option where by the user might be asked to consent to receive information from either other businesses within a group. Or just unrelated companies. Now, historically, you used to be able to pre select those boxes on behalf of the individuals, but now with PECA and GDPR, you are not able to predetermine how an individual is actually going to respond. Let's talk cookies. Cookies, not the things that uh, that we eat, but uh, they're the little bits of software that uh, is embedded on, onto websites uh, that do all sorts of things. But primarily, they are used to track and record information about users and the the types or the parts of websites that you go to. And there's a whole bunch of cookies, you know, there are analytical cookies and usage cookies. But it is important uh, as a result, well, ever since PECA came into being, that uh, you have a clear cookie policy and you give individuals the opportunity to either accept or reject some or all of the cookies, and uh, you know we're we're all familiar with these. They can often be slightly annoying messages that pop up on a website when you're just trying to do something really quickly. Uh, but essentially, don't forget the fact that if you have cookies on your website, which most people do, then you need to make sure you have a clear cookie policy and uh, and you're giving people the opportunity to find out more about cookies if they want to. I mean, in reality, most people just click the accept button because we all want things to happen very, very quickly. Uh, But if you do delve behind that, you'll find some interesting information about what companies are actually doing with your information if you click accept. Uh, There are some exceptions to that. And for example, if you're running an online uh, shop, and uh, you want to remind somebody um, of what they've added to their shopping cart, Um, that requires cookies to uh, tell you what's in the cart, but you don't need express consent to remind somebody that they have got uh, goods in their cart and to remind them that they might want to actually go to the checkout.
0: So what should I be watching for, Casey? Uh,
1: Yourself as a business I think we've got five key topics that businesses should consider when setting up in the UK or operating in the UK or Europe. First being... Are they a controller or processor? So, to bore you quickly in the definitions, controller is the one that determines the means and purposes. So, you decide what data you're collecting, how you use it, who it's shared with, everything like that. If you are a processor, you're the one that's processing on the instruction of the controller. So, that is the one key bit for businesses to realize firstly, is which one are they? Because each, if you're a controller or a processor, you have different responsibilities.
0: Gotcha. Two?
1: Two would be defining the lawful basis for processing. So this is the legal right that as a business, you've got to be able to process that data. So there are different ones out there. The key ones for businesses would be contractual obligation, legal obligation, or legitimate interest.
0: The next one I have on the list, number three, is privacy notice.
1: Yes, this is a huge, huge one. Um, It's a legal obligation to have a compliant privacy notice. And it really is the easiest way for a business to have something to tick off a compliant duty that they've got from the GDPR, which is basically to tell the data subject, Everything that they do with their data, how they collect it, who they collect it from, who they share it with, what do they do with it, what lawful basis, which was number three, do they rely on to actually use this data. So as a business, you've got the responsibility to be transparent about this. And your privacy notice allows you in a very easy way to do that because you just put it on your website and it's there for everyone to read.
0: Sure. I've yet to meet anyone in the world who is actually, apart from lawyers, who has actually read that <laughs> privacy notice.
1: Yeah, it's a very. I think if you if you find your time reading privacy notices, you definitely need to pick up a new hobby. <laughs>
0: Okay, but then in which case you point, well, what's the point of having a privacy notice if nobody reads it? But I suppose that's in the event of some kind of
1: Yes, dispute. it's a, a good defense for businesses to have to say, look, we've got it on our website, we've told you everything, it was there for you to read, it's not our fault you didn't read it.
2: Okay. It, it is quite interesting though, Dom, because if people have an issue with a company and their, the processing of their data, they do read privacy notices. I mean, just in the last week, <clears throat> I've seen two clients who've had requests from data subjects to remove them from mailing lists because they feel they're being marketed to unfairly. So whilst most people don't read them. I think when if people have an issue, it's like any contract, really. You know, mo- you know, know, We spend a lot of time negotiating contracts. They end up getting thrown in the bottom drawer and no one really looks at them until something goes wrong. And it's the same with privacy notices and cookie policies. I understand. I remember there was a time, I don't think it was a privacy notice, but it was
0: one of those things that comes up on a website and you have to accept it in order to proceed with the website or proceed with the app. But they put in a clause about uh, having your soul in the afterlife and selling your being able to sell your soul to the devil <laughs> and loads of people <laughs> accepted yeah. this as part of the contract <laughs> to read the website um, international transfers let's that's number four on your yes. list of five let's talk about that
1: um so yes the gdpr puts a rule in place or regulation in place saying you can't transfer personal data outside of the European economic area or the UK unless it is to a country that's got adequate safeguards. So for example, this would be Canada or New Zealand. So there's a list of countries that are predetermined by the European Commission that are okay for you to transfer data to without needing any extra safeguards or protections in place. If you're transferring to a country that isn't deemed adequate, such as the the U.S., You need to have um, another agreement in place essentially that is between the entity in the US and the entity within the European Economic Area or the UK that is transferring the data saying, look, we will look after the data in accordance with the GDPR and the agreement will set out all of these duties that you've got.
2: Simon, data transfers. So one of the uh, interesting things that people often forget is transfer does not mean the physical transfer of data. So if you have a server based in the UK or anywhere in the EU or the EEA and you have a technical person who is based in, say, Australia and that technical person is accessing the uh, database in the UK to troubleshoot a technical problem, then that is technically considered to be a data transfer because you have somebody outside of the uh, UK EEA accessing data and therefore you would have to have a international data transfer agreement in place, particularly if it was Australia because Australia doesn't have equivalents. And this catches our software clients in particular all the time because in reality, most software companies have their support staff based in other jurisdictions such as the Philippines, Australia, India, wherever it might be, and they often get caught just thinking, well, a transfer means I'm sending the data. It doesn't. It just means that you can access the data.
0: It's so funny. I mean, with, with COVID you know, borders have returned in the real world like never before. And then at the same time, the internet is this sort of, there are no borders, mm. it's just this borderless thing. And the law's sort of caught between borders and borderlessness.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think this is a particular issue, um, you know, in relation to the internet economy, which has underpinned you know, sort of the global economy in the last 12 months because, you know, the, the internet, as you said, Dom, has no boundaries, yet you are sort of, you have um, a whole bunch of regulations in different jurisdictions that in many cases conflict with one another and uh, don't make a lot of sense. And you, have you got set forms, set
0: contracts in place that address all of this so that people can do it fairly quickly and just adapt it slightly to their own needs?
1: Yes, absolutely. So the easiest one is the standard contractual clauses, which were actually drafted by the European uh, Commissioner. So it's a set agreement that they've got that uh, dictate what you need to do, how you do it, how you look after the data, and you just plunk it in at the back of an agreement. Um, we've also got our data processing agreements, which we've got in place and can draft for our clients, which specify in a more commercial level how to look after that data. So you've obviously got the GDPR rules and then we make it a little bit more protective for yourself. So as an example, under GDPR, a controller has the right to audit its processor. So if you were our client and you were a processor, our tip would be for this one would be to uh, put in some barriers for your business for the audit. So, for example, um, that they can only audit once a year or they have to give you 30 business days notice. The materials that they order are only in relation to the documents relevant to the agreement, not everything that's in your business. So, you just cut it down a little bit more to protect yourself.
0: Gotcha. And the fifth and final thing that we need to look out for is?
1: Breach reporting and DSARS. So, DSARS are Data Subject Access Requests and they are the... Of most businesses, they are, can be very expensive, very time consuming, and just very annoying. So, businesses, the best way to deal with them really are to ensure that you've got robust uh, procedures in place. So, if a data subject access request comes in, it goes to the right person the right person deals with it and knows how to deal with it because you've got 30 days to respond to it. So it's a matter of knowing what you need to do when it comes in, assigning the appropriate person to look after it and actually responding to it on time. In relation to breaches, Obviously, again, a good thing to have in place would be a, a breach procedure. So what to do if a breach occurs, who to report it to, how to manage it that way. And that's the easiest way that you can be compliant because what the ICO isn't going to be angry about is if the, a breach takes place. What they um, will be angry about is you've done nothing about it or you've not investigated to see or stopped, put policies or something in place to stop the breach from occurring again. They want to see you proactively avoiding such things happening again.
0: Got gotcha. you. So I'm just going to summarise those five bullet points. Firstly, we have, are you a controller or a processor? Secondly, the lawful basis of processing. Thirdly, the privacy notice. Fourthly, international transfers. And fifthly, breach reporting and DSARS. Now, on my notes here, I have a big thing saying fact, So why don't you tell us what this fact is?
1: Um, I would say it's more of a commercial top tip than a fact. Um, So a lot of businesses, when they first read up about GDPR, they get scared from the 4% global turnover or 20 million fine that could be imposed on them if they are in breach. So this was a very good way to scare businesses into looking into being GDPR compliant. But at the moment, these days, we think the most incentive isn't the the scariness of the fine but is actually the fact that businesses are realizing being data compliant is a can be a positive for their businesses and customers and clients of theirs are appreciative if they can trust that the business will actually look after their data so that's the incentive that we are seeing instead of the scariness of the fine it's more looking at data protection compliance as a enabler and unlocking businesses potential for using it as an advantage rather than a disadvantage
0: Thank you very much, Casey. Simon, when you're doing your little email markets out, when I'm I've got my email list that I I invite my huge list of followers to watch my YouTube videos, for example. If I'm emailing to a corporation or I'm emailing to an individual, are there different rules?
2: There are, yes, there are different rules. GDPR underlies them all, but in the PECA regulations, there are stricter rules if you're doing outbound email marketing to individuals than there are if you're emailing a company. Um, So, and that often explains, because often we get people that kind of will say, well, we never consented to this company contacting us as a business. The reality is, is that if somebody uses a generic email address, i.e. kind of info at domfrisbee.com, then Uh, we'll forget the fact that Dom Frisbee is your name, but a generic email address to a business is not caught by the PECA regulation, so there's no restrictions generally. However, if you were to send an email to domfrisbee at domfrisbee.com, then you would be subject to the PECA regulations because you're using an individual's uh, actual email address. So um, this is one of the reasons why, as a business, you will still receive, through any of those mediums, be it um, you know, fax, text, or email address to a generic email address, unsolicited emails. What's the biggest cock-up people make with their e-marketing? Uh, I, I think one of the biggest issues is not obtaining consent. So, so you know, one thing that people often say to us is, you know, can I email this person? because they bought something from me in the past. And the reality, the the short answer to that question is, so long as when they bought something from you, and so long as they're buying the same, or you're selling the same product or service, and so long as you gave them an opportunity to tell you that they didn't want to receive any marketing messages from you, then you can email them. So I think it's just understanding what you can and what you can't do with your email lists. one cock-up is not obtaining consent, and that
0: implies to many, many uh, areas of life. Uh, let's talk about another cock-up.
2: Uh, I, th- I think one of the other cock-ups or oversights is that people forget that there are special rules that relate to email marketing. They often confuse GDPR and the PECA regulations, and they often think that if you have a privacy notice on your website, that that is enough. That you, you know, if, if I say in my privacy notice that I will contact you with special office, for example, that that's enough. It's not enough. Uh, you, you must obtain consent, and that consent needs to be clear and unambiguous ambiguous. And then, of course, the other thing too is that you must give people the opportunity to opt out um, in a fairly simple and easy way. Yeah. And if they've asked to opt out, make sure you opt them out. Do. And and in fact, uh, another common mistake that people make is that somebody says, oh, take me off your mailing list. So people just remove the email off the mailing list what you should actually do is put those people onto another list just so just to make sure that uh, their name doesn't inadvertently go back to the kind of original mailing list. So kind of run a yes, I can mail to these people and no, I can't mail to these people and just make sure that you've got a process in place to check those lists against one another on a reasonably regular basis. And then email the people that you can't email and tell them that
0: you can't email Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so what are your sort of, give us some pieces of advice. What are your top three pieces of advice? So,
2: so I think a lot of people get quite, comes back to Casey's point, they get really daunted by GDPR and the PECA regulations, but they're reasonably straightforward on the whole to understand. And I think kind of what one bit of advice I would give is that, Anyone involved in a marketing function or any client-facing function should at least understand the basic principles, um, because that kind of prevents errors. And if you have particularly sort of complex scenarios, then just always talk to somebody who uh, who may have a bit more knowledge in the subject.
0: Okay, and make sure your consent is
2: clear yes, and unambiguous. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And finally, what is the simplest piece of advice people should remember?
2: Uh, Look, simplest bit of advice is that uh, the PECA regulations don't apply to marketing directed at a business, so long as you are using a generic business email address, i.e. contact at firma.com, as opposed to uh, a named individual. Uh, If you are using a named individual, then, of course, you have to comply with both PECA and the GDPR. Great stuff. Well, uh,
0: Simon Walsh, Casey Lee Nielsen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for your insights and thank you very much for your brevity. Uh, thank you very much, Thank Dom. you. <laughs> and if you want to find out more about anything we've just been talking about, you will find more information in the Resource Library section at oriclark.com. And if you can't find what you need, then send us an email contact at auriclark.com and one of our experts will get back to you and tell you everything you need to know and look out for more of our audio quick guides we'll be back with another one very soon